0: again my name is Kurt Caulfield my wife and I uh, lead the Stevens Point campus have been there for about two years very very grateful to be a a part of uh, what God is doing there grateful to be a part of Celebration Church Uh, coming up in June is when end of May is when we uh, started on staff but we came to visit uh, here in Green Bay about two years ago right now so grateful to be a part and uh, just Uh, step back and thrilled when I look around and see what God's doing at each one of our campuses. So uh, you're part of something that is beyond just these uh, walls here and grateful for that. If you have your Bibles tonight, turn to Philippians. Philippians, we're going to start in chapter one. I'm going to read a little bit of it to you and then we're going to go and unpack it, if you will, and kind of Go back and forth between uh, in, in, the, in the first chapter and look at several different verses. I want to talk to you tonight about what happened to Paul. Pastor Mark has been doing a series through the book of Acts. We've been talking a lot about Paul, about the letters, about his journey, and several other things. Tonight I specifically want to talk to you about what happened to Paul in relationship to the book of Philippians and his letter to them how he responded and some other things. We're going to start in verse uh, 12. I'm going to read from the NIV. This is what Paul writes. He says, "Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ." Because of my chains, most, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and more fearlessly. And it is true that some, if you're one who underlines or writes in your Bible, you might want to circle some. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Verse 12, once again, just the first part of it. Now, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me? Let's pray together. God, I pray that tonight you would inspire us greatly by the happenings in Paul's life, by what happened to him. God, let us uh, be able to effectively apply the happenings of our lives and the way that we respond, the way that we follow you and pursue you, Jesus inspire us through Paul's life and through his writings. Through your word we pray tonight, in Jesus' name, and everyone together said, amen. I'm teaching tonight out of the book of Philippians, partly because I've been in Philippians a lot over the last six months. Uh, At Stevens Point, uh, some of you might even be there tonight at the Stevens Point campus, we've been doing a men's Bible study on Wednesday mornings, and we're going through what really is my favorite book of the Bible, the book of of, uh, Philippians and so we've been in it since September and we've literally been going like phrase by phrase by phrase not even verse by verse but really phrase by phrase and we're I think on like verse 20 or so at this point we've been there since September it's been really wonderful and challenging and we're inspiring each other and discussing it every every Wednesday over breakfast Uh, and when I think about the book of Philippians it has been my favorite book for many many years I could take Bibles uh, from my library at home I have some Bibles that I was given in high school and through the years and and every bible that i have has the book of philippians just marked up marked up all these notes and all these things written in the margins because philippians has challenged me for so many years and i look at the book of philippians this way i look at the book of philippians and i say the book of philippians is not a hot biscuit now, what I mean by that is this. The town I grew up in, I grew up in East Texas, Marshall, Texas, a little town south of Texarkana. My parents still lived near there. I grew up in Marshall, Texas. When I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, in the 80s mostly, the best place to eat in Marshall, Texas was called the Hot Biscuit. And if you really wanted good food, I mean, that was like the best dining in town. And particularly if you wanted to impress a girl, you know what I'm saying? You ask her out, you go to the Hot Biscuit, it's by far the best place to eat in the the city. So I remember just revering the Hot Biscuit as the best place in town. So years later, after I graduated from high school, gone away to college, doing life, I went back to visit my parents. And when I'm there, I got this idea. I said, you know, I haven't been to the Hot Biscuit in years. We need to go to the Hot Biscuit. And my mother was like, all right, okay if that's where you want to go, you know? So we get to the hot biscuit and we pull up and even in the parking lot, something curious began to happen. I looked around when we went in. I'm like, it kind of like reminds me of a truck stop. I'm not sure what's going on here. So, you know, we sat down at the table and when they put the menu down in front of us, you ever go to a restaurant where they've got food on the menu, like they spilled food, somebody on the menu and they didn't wipe it off and it's all crusty so the menu has food all over it and and I open up the menu and it's it's the whole experience is really going downhill and the the server comes and the service is bad and the food comes and the food is bad everything is bad about this experience so finally most of the way through dinner I looked at my mother and my dad and I said wow this place really went downhill and my mother said something incredibly profound she said No, it's always been this way. (laughs) So what happened is maybe you've had the same experience. Maybe when you were younger, you were really impressed by something. Maybe it was a band, a musical band, maybe it was a restaurant, maybe it was a vacation destination, and you thought it was the best thing ever, and then 10 or 15 years later, you go back to it, and when you go back, it just totally falls flat. It's not like you remembered it. You overly romanticized it in your mind, and when you go back, you find it to be a hot biscuit, right? Right? You'll use this nowadays, you know, from here on out, you'll be at home. You're like, that's a hot biscuit, that's a hot biscuit, etc. So I look at things in my life that way, this is a hot biscuit, that's not a hot biscuit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Listen, the book of Philippians is not a hot biscuit. I was so impressed by this book when I was a young man, through my twenties. I keep going back to it. So last fall, when we went back to the book of Philippians and we started this Bible study over in Stevens Point. We men there started discussing it every week. I was deeply, once again, challenged in a very profound way. And what I want to share with you tonight, talking about what happened to Paul, I want to, as best as I possibly can, help you apply this principle to your own life and be transparent with you about some things in my own life where, compared to Paul, my response wasn't as great as his, but there's still many years of my life to change that. And I hope to live out the example that Paul displays for us. So, the book of Philippians, it's no hot biscuit. There are so many wonderful things to glean and to learn from it. So, we read from verse 12 to 18, Paul's saying, hey, I want you to know that what has happened to me. But before we get to verse 12, Paul has a lot to say. He has this wonderful, long introduction. And it's really, in many ways, unlike his introduction from other letters. In some of the other letters, he's formal and he introduces himself as Paul the Apostle. But in Philippians, he simply introduces himself. You can see it in verse 1. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul introduces himself to them as a servant. He really has this way of writing to them in the book of Philippians that feels more like a friend. And he was very affectionate, if you will. Affectionate, he was very, had this friendship with the Philippians that was unlike really any of the other churches that he wrote to. And it comes out in this letter. So he greets them with grace and peace. This is the common way that Paul greets people, grace and peace. I, nowadays, in fact, in our Bible study in Stephen's Point, uh, we have a group of, you know, group text that goes out every week and throughout the weeks we text each other. And we've, we've created this culture in this group that we're in there where we greet each other. Even at church when we see each other on the weekends, we say, hey, grace and peace to you, grace and peace. We even do it in texts to say grace and peace, we want to continually, like Paul, be, if you will, speaking that over each other, grace to you and God's peace to you, aware of how much the grace of God, how greatly it has impacted our own lives and the peace of God. So we greet each other in this way. So Paul says to the Philippians, he says, I thank God every time I remember you with prayer. When they come to his mind, that he immediately goes into thanksgiving. Maybe there's some people in your life like that. You, when they come to mind, you're thankful. Maybe there's some people in your mind, when they, or in your life, that when they come to your mind, it's not thankfulness that you think of, right? Maybe you get, a you know, like, God, please. You know, Rick Warren called it extra grace needed. Remember he said in The Purpose Driven Life, he said that if you're in a small group, every small group has an extra grace person needed, you know, extra grace needed person. Every group. And he said, if you don't know who that person is in your group, it must be you. (laughs) Some of you are that person, okay? Maybe I'm that person. I don't know. At any rate... Uh, Paul's thankful when he thinks of them. He has all this wonderful affection. He says he longs for them. This is not something typical that men say to each other, but Paul, a man, says, I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So he has this relationship with them. He had history with them. You'll remember in Acts when Pastor Mark has been teaching through this, when when Paul shows up in the city of Philippi and he meets Lydia and he gets thrown in jail and they're singing in the midnight hour and the earthquake happens. All this happens in Philippians. He has a great history there, great friendship, great affection for the people that he's writing to. Now, verse 12 becomes very important because in verse 12, Paul switches gears. He uses the word now. Some of your versions might not have that word. The NIV has it. Some of the other translations have it. But uh, it's a wonderful word, the word now, you know? Uh, Not like now get here with our children or maybe somebody else you're commanding to be here now. Now is sometimes just a subtle like left turn signal. I like to do that. I'm I'm a fairly scattered person. (laughs) I have a friend that I catch up with. We're very close friends and he lives in California. And when we get time to talk together on the phone, man, we've got a lot to cover. And it might be a week or two before we're going to talk again, but we, try, you know, we just cover a lot. So in order to cover a lot, I give turn signals in the conversation. I'm like, okay, I'm taking a quick turn here. Boom, different subject. That's the way we talk. Paul's suddenly doing that here. He's like, he's saying, I'm thankful for you. Every time I think of you, I'm thankful. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And then he says, now. It's like a change of subject. He says, now, I want you to know that what has happened to me And I want to pause there. Because when the letter to the Philippians would have been read aloud in the church of Philippi, when the reader gets to this point in the letter, they would have been incredibly captivated. Because they knew that Paul was in prison. They knew that quite likely he was soon going to be put to death They knew that he was in struggle, that he was in suffering. And the thing that they probably were wondering about more than anything else, the thing that they wanted to know, they wanted to know details. They wanted to know what is happening to Paul. So when Paul says, now, I want you to know that what has happened to me, and I'm going to pause right there. He's going to unpack it. I read it already earlier, but... I just, anticip- I just think that the anticipation would have been so great at the church of Philippi. They would have been leaning forward saying, okay, what? Give us details. What's happening? How is he? How is he being treated? Is he being fed well? Is he sleeping? He would have had a guard switching chain. He's chained to a guard, a prison guard, and every four hours they shift. So even in the nighttime, he's going to be awakened with shifting guards They would have wanted to have known the details. Now, before I unpack for you how Paul responds, I want to unpack for you how I responded a couple of years ago, really in the last five years, uh, some things uh, that I didn't really respond in the same way as the apostle Paul did. I wish I could change that. I wish I could go back. And, you know, sometimes people will say they live their lives with no regrets. I will tell you that I'm a person that just says, I have regrets. I don't want to live in those regrets. But there are moments where I look back and go, I wish I could have done that differently. So Paul, when he's facing his prison and when he's, when he's in, in his suffering season... I want to contrast how he responded with, in a way, how I responded. If I would have known that you would have responded poorly and have responded poorly, maybe I would prefer to tell your story, but I don't know it, so I'll tell you mine. Over the last five years, I I went through some great challenges, really as a result of of some of my own failures, many of my own failures, some of my own struggles, and I found myself in a place uh, that was somewhat like Paul's, I guess, in the fact that there was suffering involved and there was a sense of, of being, you know, in prison, it was a metaphorical prison, not a literal prison, but a metaphorical prison. And in that season, I would often catch up with friends. I would often call friends. I would see people. I mean, there was a season where I was, if you will, struggling so greatly that I wasn't connected with enough people, but, but I was connecting with friends. And often when I would connect with them, it, it could feel like Paul greeting and catching up with those at the Church of Philippi. He has great love for them, great affection for them. And so here he hasn't talked to them a while, and it's like you get this, you know, this at least one-way conversation, and he's sitting with them. And this, to me, feels like several of these meetings that I had, connections, lunches, dinners, phone calls that I had with others. And, and when it came to the point of the conversation after we said, hey, I greet you, grace and peace, hey, I love you, et cetera, it's great to see you, which is kind of what Paul's doing in the first 12 verses. Then when it got around to the point where I said, okay, now, what's happening? The focus of my conversations did not play out like the conversations of Paul. First thing I would say is that uh, often uh, when I sat with other people for a season of my life over the last five years, three years, in that period of time, there was a season where often when I was sitting with people that I loved and that were my friends, the subject of the conversation at great length was about my own failures, my own things that I'd failed at. Now, sometimes those of you who've gone through counseling and those of you who maybe have done the 12 steps or done other things, there are appropriate times where the conversation, the subject of the conversation needs to be our failures and the things that we struggled with. There are times where that's appropriate and necessary. But I'm saying that often when I would get together with friends I hadn't seen in a while, the overwhelming conversation and the subject of the conversation was here's where I failed. And I look back and think there were probably occasions where it went beyond just being transparent and honest with my friends. It went to a point where it was the focus and the centerpiece of my life. It was the subject of every conversation to an exhausting measure. And then I would say that from that season, I kind of eased into another season where the conversations often then came to be about Well, not only my own failures, but the failures of others, people that had disappointed me. And it became this is the the center of every conversation. And uh, Jason and I was, my wife, we were visiting about this today, and I was kind of practicing, if you will, my, my message with her, and I was going through, and she said, and she goes, I remember that season. She said, I remember sitting with people and just thinking, oh no, not again, not another one of these conversations. This is where I've failed miserably. This is where others have failed miserably. This is what that person did, and that person, this was the subject of conversations in my life for a couple of years. And interestingly enough, when Pastor Mark first uh, reached out to Jason and I uh, a little over two years ago, I will tell you, we, we, if Pastor Mark were here, he would say amen to this and we would probably laugh about it, but in a very sincere way, the first time that I really connected with him at length, when we came over to visit, I sat with him for hours and I said, this is where I failed and this is where others have failed me. And he just kept saying, hey, I don't need to know all of this. And he, was, and he would ask me other pointed questions to kind of say where I am at this point, but I think I just exhausted him for hours because at that point in my life, that was the center of my life where I had failed and where others had failed me. I'm not sure where you are tonight. I'm not sure where you've gone, what you've been through. But maybe there are some of you tonight that if you were transparent or if you could look at enough you might say there was a season in my life where i was like that there was a season in my life maybe it's you're there now and uh, i'll talk to you about other types of suffering that that this applies to but but in paul's situation paul doesn't respond that way watch what happens it's so beautiful what he says in verse 12 he says now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, and watch what he says, has really served to advance the gospel. And what's baffling and beautiful and inspiring and amazing about Paul's response here is that he gives no details about the suffering that he's going through. Instead, he goes to the results this is the result of what has happened to me. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going without this food. I'm confined. I can't go here. I can't travel there. He, does, he could have easily have done that, couldn't he? And they would have been curious. They would have wanted to have known. But he's modeling something here that is a, just a principle that if we could get a hold of, if I can get a hold of this and live this out for the rest of my life, it can be life-changing. Paul says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has served has served to advance the gospel. And then he starts unpacking it. What are the results? The results. Then he just starts unpacking. He says, okay, number one, the first result, is in verse 13, and he says this. Watch, he says, uh, in verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. What he says here is one of the results of me being here in prison, one of the results for me experiencing this suffering One of the results is that those who even are guarding me, those who have me in chains, things are becoming more clear to them. Can you imagine how confusing and baffling Christianity must have been to a Roman guard who was guarding Paul? I mean, the Romans were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. Their, their, Their religion was pagan. It was all twisted up, and they worshiped the Caesars. I mean, they've got all this stuff, and here comes Paul proclaiming the good news of Jesus. His love, his salvation, his forgiveness, his grace, him being Emmanuel, God with us, God himself put on human skin and came to this earth for us. Paul's declaring this and it must have been terribly confusing to the Roman guards guarding him and yet here's what Paul says. He says, it has become clear to them that I'm here, my chains are for the sake of Christ. So these guys who were confused, things were becoming more clear to them. This is the first result that Paul points out. So could you imagine if Paul would have become bitter? If he would have become, became a victim, if you will, victim mentality. If he would have uh, become overly depressed. Not that he never would have struggled or wrestled with depression. Maybe he did. But I think that his discipline and his thinking, he just got it in his mind. What is going to be my focus? And I don't think the chains were his focus. I think he was saying the focus is going to be that these people who are terribly confused about the gospel, things are becoming more clear to them. So that's the first thing. The palace guards, things are becoming more clear. Then in verse 14, this is what Paul says. "Uh, Because of my chains, the result of his chains, the result of his suffering, because of my chains, most, if you underline your Bible, you might want to circle or underline most, Most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and more fierce, uh, with more uh, with more fierceness, without fear, fearlessly. Now watch this: if Paul would have been succumbed to fear, if he would have been, uh, if he would have succumbed to uh, depression, if he would have just given up there in his prison cell, then you know what would have happened to other believers. They also would likely have become people that would be gripped by fear. They would have become people that were were afraid. But because Paul is able to be there in the midst of his great suffering, because he's able to be there and have this victorious mentality, then they have become more courageous and they're sharing their faith with more fervor than they ever have before. Paul says, look what's happened. People are seeing things more clearly. People are becoming, becoming more courageous. Why? Because of my chains. His focus is in the right place. And then there's a third mysterious thing uh, that happens. This, I have to tell you, uh, as I was walking through this message with my wife, she's like, okay, this is the hard part. I really gotta really unpack this for you clearly, okay? Because this is a bit confusing, but Paul connects it in context. And context is always king when we're talking through scripture. So he gives three things that happen. The first thing is that palace guards are seeing more clearly their understanding Better, And then secondly, people are becoming more courageous. But look at this third mysterious thing that happens as a result of Paul being in his chains. He says, it is true that some, and you might wanna circle some because some is contrasted with most. He says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. And verse 16, the latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, this is a tough one to get your mind around, but watch this. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, Because I am in prison because I'm in chains because I'm here what really has happened practically speaking is that some space has opened up on the stage if you will there's just you know think about it right now on Christian TV there's only so many channels only so much time and it's full of wonderful many great some not as great but many great Christian (laughs) preachers right so tomorrow if for some reason one of those preachers had to go off the air what would happen somebody else would fill that airtime. Now, in a way, and you know, I'm not, I don't want to make this overly crude, but in a way, that's kind of what happens with Paul. He's out there preaching and making a big difference, and his stage is big, and he's preaching, but he has his critics, right? But when he goes to jail, what happens? Now there's a little bit more space on the stage, and what he's saying, watch this. He's saying, as a result of me being here in these chains, some, not most, he was saying most have become more fearless and more courageous, but some preach Christ out of selfish ambition and out of envy, out of rivalry. And how does he respond to this? What's what's fascinating to me is that, watch this, Paul was really never, he was not one to run from confrontation. He was confrontational, right? He was kind of an in-your-face type of guy. He also was not afraid to call out heretics. So if you were a heretic man, he would call you out. And he would call you by name, in his letters, 2,000 years later, we're still reading about these people. He would call out heretics. In fact, in chapter 3, uh, is it chapter 3? I've got the verse up. It's uh, chapter 3, yeah. Watch this. In verse 2, he says this. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. There were those, the Judaizers, they called them. They were coming into the churches, and they were really more about making Jews than they were about making Christians, converting people to the Jewish faith and not the Christian faith. Pastor Mark has referred to this recently a couple times. It's all over the book of Acts, right? It was a big deal. The idea was that if you were wanting to become a Christian, you were a man, then you had to be circumcised. Paul comes along and says, no. And so the guys who were coming in and preaching that at the churches, he had no patience for them. He was in their face, would call them out by name, called them dogs. But what does Paul say about those who are preaching Christ out of wrong ambition? out of selfish motivation he celebrates it he says because i'm in here they're out there their platform and their influence is growing and he says they have wrong motivation they're envious they're, they they're, they have rivalry he says but what does not matter and the end what really matters is that christ is being preached now when i think about uh when I think about this idea of calling people out by name, uh, we don't, we're not used to that often in the churches that we have, you know. Nowadays, when I first started in ministry, gosh, in the late '80s, first church I worked at, I was like 19 years old. I was leading worship and leading the youth ministry at this great church in Shreveport, Louisiana, called Life Tabernacle. And the pastor that I worked with was this really brilliant man. He was from Ireland, you know. He might be a hot biscuit if I were to go back now because his accent made him so brilliant i mean he just no i'm joking he's probably very brilliant but his accent he just sounded so intelligent profound everything he said with this irish accent sounded profound right So when I first started leading worship there, in that tradition, what they would do, maybe you've been to a church like this, what they would do is I would be out leading worship and singing, and there'd be a choir and a band. About five or 10 minutes into the service, the elders and a couple of the pastors would walk in the side door, and they'd stand in in front of these chairs, and then they would sit in these chairs when the preacher was preaching. Anybody remember churches like that? Anybody? Some of you do. (laughs) Bet says he remembers. So it was a tradition of churches. So I went to, you know, I'd be like leading worship for 10 minutes, and then I would hear Neil, my Irish pastor, his voice behind me. he'd be singing in this big voice and for some reason when he was in the room I felt far more confident right and so I went to him and I said I feel really insecure I'm like 19 years old I'm like I feel really insecure but until you come into the room I said so could you come into the sanctuary a little sooner you know could you just come in a little bit sooner and he looked at me and he said Kurt if I didn't believe in you I wouldn't have you there (laughs) it was like my brave heart moment you know what I'm saying it's like freedom, you know. I could do this, you know. So he made a big impact on my life. But I tell you all that about him because I have to tell you the story about calling people out by name, you know, those who are a mess. So Neil was preaching this message again. Anything he said sounded so profound, but he was going to preach this message. And watch this, calling people out by name. This is what he did. He said we're, he gets up one Sunday morning. and says we're. He said there's a family here in our church. And you've been here, some of multiple families, and you've been here since the beginning. And I wish I could imitate his Irish accent, but he said, but we want you to leave. (laughs) That's what he said. You've been here since the start, but we want you gone, we want you to leave. And he said, we want you to walk out that back door and to never come back. (laughs) And I'm telling you, in that church, you could have heard a pin drop. And then he said this, he says, I'm going to call you by name. And we're going to use first names. And I'm telling you, I'm 19 years old. (laughs) I'm sitting there. It is the strangest church moment I'd ever been in. So then he says this. He says, the first family that we want to leave, we want you gone, we want you to never come back, is the Ness family. And in my head, I'm like, Ness, Ness, Ness. Who was the Ness guy who got Al Capone out, you know? What was his name? What was the Ness guy? What was it? Elliot Ness, I'm thinking, I know Elliot Ness, but I don't know any other Nessis, you know. What about the Ness family? My mind's my, going through it. And then he, he said, you could hear a pin drop, and he says, and the first member in the Ness family that we want gone is pridefulness. <laughs> so he did this, like, six-week series on pridefulness and selfishness and all these other Nesses in the Ness family. But you better believe he had everybody's attention right from the start because he said we want you out we want you gone and we're going to call you by name well he didn't exactly call the families out by name but he got everybody's attention it was a great moment now paul on the other hand unlike neil there were many occasions where paul actually called people by name and said they're heretics and we want them out make no space for them he was That way. And yet, here in this occasion, he says, There are three results of my chains. The guards are seeing more clearly. Those who are confused about Christianity are getting it like they've never gotten it before. And he says, Most of the believers are becoming more courageous and becoming more fearless. And then a third and mysterious response is that he says, some are out there preaching. As a result of me being here, some are out there preaching and they're doing it out of selfish ambition, but they're preaching Jesus. Note that. He says they're preaching Jesus. They're out there preaching Jesus. Do you know it's possible to preach Jesus and have wrong motivation? It's true on this occasion. And Paul's response, watch this. If there was anything that could have made Paul bitter, Maybe it would have been in this scenario. Maybe Paul sitting there in jail would have compared himself. Do you ever compare yourself to someone else? Are you ever, do you ever have rivalry? Or is there somebody that you're in some competition with? It is quite likely that Paul sitting there in jail with some of those who had been critical of him, some of those who had undermined him on occasion, are all of a sudden now succeeding and thriving and doing well and watch Paul sits there in jail, and he celebrates it. He says, I rejoice in this. He's like, they're out there doing it this way. He says, but what does it matter? What does it matter? What matters is that Christ is preached. And that's the most important thing. So three things that are happening here that are inspiring, man. And again, that third one, it's hard to get your mind around it, but I will just say this, that sometimes in my own life, maybe it's true in your life, is that if we're not careful when we're in the midst of struggle and suffering, sometimes one of the most difficult things to deal with is the success of others. Others experiencing success when we're experiencing suffering, a metaphorical prison. Now, when I think about Paul's suffering, there's four kinds of suffering that I, that I, I just want to mention that I think are are. Ways to look at our own life and say, what am I suffering with? There are four types of suffering. The first one that I want to talk about, I'm going to call it, I'm trying to find it in my notes. In fact, I think Nancy has it. Oh, the first one, I'm going to call it corrective suffering. I want you to look at your own life and say, okay, now which kind of sufferings have I experienced and which was the type that Paul was experiencing? I'll call it corrective suffering. Sometimes we go through suffering in our lives and the suffering is just the consequences from the choices we've made or the sins we've committed or our failures. There is corrective suffering. And this is true for children and it's true. Those of you who have young children, do you ever use the word consequences with them? You ever say, hey, there will be a consequence with my kids. There will be a consequence. And in their mind, what you're trying to get them say, is it worth the consequence, right? (laughs) Is it worth it? So it's true of children, it's true of adults, it's true of young, it's true of old. There are consequences. And sometimes it might be that you're in a season now where you're going through some suffering that is due to to that. And you're being corrected. Now, is Paul in that type of suffering? Is he being corrected? No, it's not that. There were occasions, get this, when Paul is blinded on the road to Damascus, I would consider that corrective suffering, right? He's out murdering Christians, or at least trying to. He gets blinded on the road to Damascus. His eyes, he can't see. He's in pain. He's fallen off his horse. It's corrective suffering. But here in jail, it's many, many, many years down the road from that. There's a second kind of suffering. I'm going to call it, if I had to come up with a name, I wanted them to all have C's, so it would make it a little easier for you to remember. You've got corrective suffering, and then you've got what I'm going to call conditioning suffering. Those of you who are athletes, uh, have you ever done any conditioning? You lift weights, you run. You, you know, whatever you do, you, you do it so you condition yourself so that you can endure more. I ran a marathon some years ago. I barely, barely, barely finished, okay? I finished with like the old ladies. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, and I just remember I did three 20-mile runs before I did the full marathon, right? And the first one, I just hit the wall. Anybody ever trained for a marathon in your training run or maybe during the marathon, you hit the wall, literally your body just freezes up. Well, why did I keep going? I was trying to condition myself, condition myself, right? So maybe you're in a situation where you've intentionally put yourself into this suffering situation because you want to condition yourself for greater, you want to condition yourself for greater performance, greater accomplishments to come. Paul's not in that type of suffering, but sometimes we go through that type of suffering. The way that Paul responds, by the way, is a model for all four of these types of suffering. Whether I'm in correction, whether I'm in conditioning, I can still say, what is going to be my focus? Am I going to focus on the advancement of the gospel? Am I going to focus on Christ being preached through my life? If not through words, at least in my choices and in the, my attitudes and, and my behaviors, etc. Christ can be preached in all those things no matter what type of suffering you find yourself in. So, corrective suffering, conditioning suffering. Then there's a third time, A third type, I'm gonna call it compassionate suffering. Of course, when it comes to compassionate suffering, how could you not think of Mother Teresa? Mother Teresa puts herself intentionally into the situation and in seeing the pain and the agony of others, then she grows in her compassion. Her compassion increases. Remember, also Jesus displays this, of course, to the utmost, There are several occasions in the Gospels where it says that Jesus looked at them and he was moved with compassion. Many times in the Gospels, he's moved with compassion. There's one time it says he sees the people and he sees them as sheep with no shepherd and he was moved with compassion. And then the story directly goes into Jesus talking about him giving himself for us in the narrative of the story. Compassion. Maybe you're in a place where you have intentionally put yourself where you're going to grow in your compassion. We just had a team get back from Honduras. Uh, Pastor Chad and Pastor Joe are going to India here in a couple of weeks. Pastor Bob's been to Miramar recently. Maybe you're doing a, an outreach in your community. And Stephen's point, we have several of folks there who are involved with Place of Peace, which is a, an, uh, a ministry that serves the homeless in our community. Anytime you put yourself in a situation like that, it will feel inconvenient. It will feel, if you will, somewhat like suffering sometimes to a much greater extent. But in that place, we should be able to grow in compassion. Now, is Paul in that type of suffering? I don't think so. Maybe, but I think he's in the next one. And and I had a struggle coming up with the C for this one, but I found it. I'm going to call it this. And I think that this is the most difficult of all of the types of suffering. I'm going to call it consenting suffering. And by consenting, what I mean is this. Sometimes in our lives, and I think this is true in the story of Paul, we go through suffering and it's simply that God consents to it and he allows it. He permits it. It's the hardest one to get your mind around. The story of Job, I mean, the story of Job is a just a very difficult story right those of you know the story of job it's a long poem the book of job is poetically written and remember in the story of job again it's just crazy story of sorts but in the story this is what it says it says satan and god are having a conversation and god somewhat brags about his servant job he says have you seen my servant job he's so faithful and satan says to god you'll remember this in the story satan says well of course he's faithful to you you've blessed him so greatly. Satan says if you took away your blessing off of him, then it wouldn't be so. So Job, because God simply consents to it, and how can you get your mind around this idea that God would permit and allow this? It's simply out of God's sovereignty and out of an awareness that God is good. And having this awareness and saying, ultimately, no matter what, God is good. And he's working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Job loses all of his children, loses all of his wealth. He loses his health. He has these boils on his body. He's suffering greatly, right? And he has his three friends who come and have this long conversation with him. And remember the types of things they say to Job? They say things like, we don't know what you did, but it must have been really bad. Because God is obviously mad at you. And the only person you'll remember in Job's family that doesn't die, oddly enough, is who? Do you remember? His wife. And some would argue it would have been better if she would have not died, or if she would have died, right? Because remember what she tells him to do? She says, curse God and die. I mean, she's just, you know, it just makes the suffering worse, right? Here he is in this consenting type of suffering. For whatever reason, God has permitted it, God has allowed it, God is going to receive glory in it ultimately because Job continues his faithfulness to God and Job disproves Satan's thesis, that Job will only follow you, God, if you greatly bless him. And to this day, you and I can be inspired by that. We can say, hey, God is able, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God is able to deliver, but even if he doesn't, still, we will not bow. Job, even with his limited revelation, he doesn't have the New Testament, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit, he doesn't have the Torah. When Job lives his life, the, the first five books of the Bible are not even written. He doesn't have this, and yet he stays faithful. So even the more is it likely and possible that we can stay faithful with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Job stays faithful in the midst of this consenting suffering. Now here's the Apostle Paul. And he's in somewhat of a similar situation. He's in this situation not because he's made poor decisions and because he's been sinful, not because he's trying to condition himself to be greater, not because he's necessarily trying to grow in his compassion. He's there, and in some ways, it really doesn't make sense. And maybe you found yourself in some season of your life in that type of situation where it just doesn't make sense. And how does he respond? Does he get angry and curse God and die? Does he become bitter? Does he become uh, angry at those who are succeeding even though he's in chains? Does he get angry at those who are guarding him? No, because Paul keeps his focus. And the mission of his life, the thing that he wants to see more than Anything else is more and more people come to know and love Jesus and experience the love and grace and peace that He greets them with at the start of His letter. In the midst of His consenting suffering, this is how the Apostle Paul responds. He stays focused on the important thing. Look at that in in chapter 1. Again, just to read that again, he says, but what does not matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. He rejoiced in the midst of his suffering. Now, I will tell you that when I went through the season I went through a couple of years ago, uh, rejoicing was a challenge for me. It's a great challenge for me. There's uh, I like to write songs. I've written numerous songs, and and I work out a lot of what I'm thinking and a lot of what I'm going through through songs, and and I wrote this song about rejoicing about two years ago, and the opening line, I'll sing the opening line for you, it says, uh, the opening line says, it says, they say joy comes in the morning, and I'm ready for morning, they say you can make dry bones dance, I'm ready for dancing, I'm ready for dancing. And in the one that I have not seen yet, the one who's faithful to his promises, I will rejoice in the Lord always. The song goes on from there, but it was just openly admitting it's like, they say joy comes in the morning, I'm ready for it because I have dry bones and I'm weary and I'm struggling in the midst of whatever type of suffering I was going through. But Paul makes a decision he's going to rejoice. Sometimes it is simply that. So I want to ask you some questions before we end tonight. We have just less than five minutes. And I want, I really want you to exercise in your own mind and say, okay, where, where are you in this narrative uh, of the story of Paul? Where do you connect? What is similar in your life? What is, what are some things that maybe you've gone through types of suffering? How did you respond? And then I want to encourage us to make a commitment in the future. How can we respond to our suffering, to our struggles that we find ourselves in prisons, even if they are metaphorical? First question I want to ask you is this, what are your conversations like? When you get together with people that you haven't seen in some years and you're catching up, what is the subject that you talk most about? Is it your own failures? Do you feel compelled and obligated to just talk about your failures. Again, there are certain contexts where that's worthwhile, and it's good to do that. If you're working the steps, if you're doing some other things, you're with a counselor, yes. But what I'm saying is, is it the center of your life? Then through the grace of God, what we can experience is we can become free of shame because that being obsessed with our failures is really a sign of great shame in our lives. And we can become free of that. Is it the failure of others? Is that the subject of your conversation where others have wronged you and others have not been fair to you and others have not been just to you? Maybe you went through a divorce. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe something even more horrible happens. Maybe you feel there have been occasions where God himself has not been fair with you. Maybe you lost a child. Maybe something terribly horrible. Maybe you lost a spouse. Maybe someone betrayed you deeply and you feel it's terribly unfair. If you become obsessed with this part of your life, then it will rot you and you'll never realize all that God has for you. That would have been the case for the Apostle Paul. He had every reason to become obsessed with how he'd been mistreated and other things in his life, but he doesn't. He keeps his focus on his mission. Now, Here's how you do it. Chapter three, verse 13, this is what Paul says. He says, one thing I do. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is the thing. When we're in those places, we're struggling so greatly. Really, sometimes all we can say is this. We can just say, one thing, one thing, one thing I'm going to do. I'm going to forget what is behind, and I'm going to press on towards the future. That's going to be the one thing I do. And if you can get that, and I will tell you, there are seasons where it's so challenging to not think about the past. And we need to deal with our grief. There are seasons where there's a process of dealing with our grief, and it needs to be dealt with, or it can reap much havoc later in our lives. Yes, deal with your grief, and do it in the right pace, and yet don't allow yourself to get totally stuck there. That's what Paul does. And then in verse 17, watch this. This is why I think this is being taught tonight and preached. Paul says this, "'Join with others in following my example, brothers, "'and take note of those who live according to the pattern "'that we gave you.'" Paul's saying, listen, listen, I mean, it's really something that Paul's able to say this. I mean, he's not saying it about every part of his life, but he's saying, look at this pattern. Look at how I'm living. Look at how I'm processing this, the way I'm doing it. We encourage you to do the same. It's worth emulating. It's worth imitating the example that Paul gives us. So when people think about your life and they say, hey, what happened to so-and-so? What were your happenings? I would love it in your life and in my life Years from now, if someone said, hey, what happened to Kurt? And if the subject of the conversation was not, oh, that set of failures, and oh, that set of offenses, and oh, that thing there. Instead, wouldn't it be wonderful if in your life and in my life and the life of our church, we became people, when spoken of, others said, hey, because of them, the gospel and the good news of God's great love for us was advanced and furthered because of the way they responded. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm personally challenged greatly, greatly, God, by the example that Paul gives. I pray that these words and this message will just kind of stir and simmer in us for days to come and that this model and example that Paul gave us will be one that we are able to imitate well in every season, through every struggle. We pray this in the name of Jesus and everyone together said, amen. God bless you, have a great night. Remember to pray for Pastor Mark and and Debbie as they're uh, dealing with this death in their family. God bless you.